0: And you guys, tell me what you think of this. Is that if if what is rendered if what is properly rendered unto God is rendered unto Caesar? Then Caesar becomes inflated to God. got for my world. Oh He cloudy through.
1: when you sink got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. but Stevie's in her visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jeweler's character in the same immortality with fairy dust. Never land. Never say I'd never give you hands
2: if I can't. Give Welcome to the Belfast God. Podcast. I'm your host with Byler we're we're doing something um vander clay, vander clay commented on uh, the last video i posted so that was a win um yeah
3: yeah we are yeah. um trying to sift through divinity school seminary and help ourselves and others yeah understand yeah. the bible more completely and holistically
2: something like that something like that so um today is actually i know what this is i actually listened to what we're going to react to today twice so i'm mostly familiar with this content uh daniel does not know what's about to happen so this is going to be fun i wanted yeah i purposely didn't give him information um at least explicitly about what we were going to react to today. So it's a blind reaction for him for the most part. And I just think that'd be fun. I was going to see, you know, how the conversation would be as a part of that me knowing more or less what's going on and him not knowing at all. But we had a conversation on the phone a few weeks ago where we talked about the concept, the concepts we've been talking about in the past few episodes. About literature, about the Bible, about how to communicate, about the worldview of those who wrote and heard the Bible, and our in our world, and how a lot of what this goes with the relevance theory reactions that we had earlier about how that kind of communication is important and understanding that's important, uh, and there and there's ways in which even that itself hits its own wall because we can't know all the time who the exact audience of a certain thing was Uh, in the case of something like the book of Hebrews, we kind of have an idea of the audience, but there's big debate as anyone who's at least a bit familiar knows about who the author of Hebrews is. So in my mind, it doesn't matter because I'm a Canon guy. That's my limitation that's my foundation and borders for interpretation of the scripture fundamentally is a it's in the canon so it's important although i have certain issues with our Protestant canon but that's maybe another discussion and <laughs> uh, but b like it's there and it's obviously playing with a lot of stuff from the old testament and that's really important but also how it uses the old testament is fascinating it's not as we said before, we got on. It's not in any way what you would be taught of how to deal with the Old Testament and seminary, which I think is a failure of seminary. If I'm being completely honest, um, so if you want to comment on that, you can. <laughs> I see you like yeah. gearing up. Um,
3: well, I would say that I'm. I've become increasingly fascinated more recently with extra-biblical, um, outside-the-canon texts, partially because I've been reading a lot of works by early church fathers for a class that I'm sure I will talk about some later, um, that um, they reference a lot of extra-biblical texts, deuterocanonical works like Ben Sarach, um Shepherd of Hermas, and others, Wisdom of Solomon, um in ways that demonstrate their authoritative status within the community that they're talking to
2: i mean like we talked about a few weeks ago what's going on in the reference of genesis 6 to the book of enoch yeah how do and and it's not just these two books but peter and jude explicitly mm-hmm. make ref this is my argument for yes. my issue with canonical books yeah Peter and Jude are making explicit references to the book of Enoch. Now then we can debate if that's the case, should it be canonical and on it would go, right? But the point that I'm making that example and you're making is that there's a lot of stuff in and this is back to relevance theory. There's a lot of stuff in the cognitive environment of the writers peter and jude and false prophets the sons of god the quote from first john that i read on that episode test of the spirits oh so john there's other spirits what yeah. what do you mean by that yeah. what, where are we getting these ideas why do we compare the sons of as heiser says the sons of god the apkalu the ones that help us destroy ourselves even faster the ones that lead those in the church astray to false teaching to other gods as false teachers well there's a lot going on here that's not just oh yeah well they said some weird stuff about jesus yeah it's true but there's way more going on
3: yeah and both of those um specifically second peter and jude are expecting you to be familiar enough with enoch to recognize that they're riffing off of it
4: mm-hmm.
3: and um in in the words of um richard hayes um, he writes the book on um, echoes in the scriptures right mm-hmm. um, echoing back to the old testament specifically um it's it's doing this this hyperlink that we've talked about before and that implies greater cultural context and understanding, but also it does kind of break down those barriers between canonical and non-canonical, because in order to fully understand the canonical, you have to go to a non-canonical source. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that we need to expand the canon. What I am saying is, and I had a fellow student um, a couple of of classes ago, I think it was on Tuesday, um, talk about how we talked on this exact topic of how a lot of the early church preachers they reference these texts that we don't consider to be canonical, um, and how he's heard pastors in the past say, Well, I've got my 66 books and there's enough in there for me. Mm-hmm. I, you know, there is a ton in there. I would say there is enough in there. But in order to better understand them, sometimes we have to go outside and develop a framework, a structure, a um, something that allows for a greater understanding. And I think the book of Enoch is a very good example of how that works with, um, with 2 Peter and Jude. I also think there are certain texts from Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls that we've found that have helped us understand the gospel of John better. Because previously scholars thought John is so different from other Israelite texts we've had and Jewish texts we've had, and so different from the rest of the Gospels, that it must have been written in a more Roman context, because it deals with a lot of Roman mythological, like Jesus is dethroning certain Roman and Greek gods in some of the miracles, right? But what we've realized with the background of certain texts from Qumran, is that this is actually, it fits within a certain apocalyptic genre of Jewish texts, a lot of the language of light and dark and word and flesh and water and spirit is very Jewish. And all, so,
2: which are all big themes in John's own letters, by mm-hmm. the
3: way. Yeah. And so all of these things then get painted in a new light when you understand the other texts that were in circulation at that time as well, informing the author's methodology when he wrote
4: so you know um the canon's important but
3: the canon is enriched i think that's a key term it's not changed yeah. it's not manipulated it's not destroyed it is enriched by the extra canonical material that we have It helps us develop a better understanding.
2: Yeah. On that note, perfect segue, actually, to whatever, to what we're reacting to today. And what we're reacting to, the reason I brought up the conversation we had (laughs) offline was I made reference to the thing we're going to react to. Um, But keep all that in mind. The environment to which what, what he's going to preach on is written to and even a lot of what you just said about John and Romans and the apocalyptic literature, which we're reacting to a sermon about apocalyptic literature today, <laughs> uh, it has, it's not even just this is what was going on in Rome or in Jerusalem at X time. Here's who ruled. This has way more to do with, uh, let's say, political theology. Because keep in mind, and this is, and I'll just tangent here real quick, but this is so important to know. Not until recent history, and when I say recent history, I mean the past few hundred years, have we had, and in America, it was made explicit. And in England before that, but even not as explicit as in America, is the separation of church and state. Any other civilization that you study, especially major civilization, be it East or West, the ruler was God. And that's not even a theoretical or psychological conception that we're talking about. Like, oh, they're they're on the top, so they're God, what they say goes. No, Caesar was son of Jupiter, a Roman god. We'll we'll get into this here in a minute, but the the point is, and in Egypt you see the same thing. Pharaoh is is Ra, is the is God incarnate, literally. He is perceived that way, which is also why the plagues are against the gods of Egypt to partially prove that Yahweh is the Most High these other gods do not hold the same power that he does and not that they're not real by the way i've heard people make that point a lot about paul at mars hill or things in like the plagues or the idols of other nations and you all know the train i'm on because you've been following me and you know about cosmic geography i i heard a girl in my new testament class this week be like yeah, so Paul was like disproving that their gods are fake. And I almost said, no, they're not fake. They're actually real. But I didn't want to have that whole debate because then I have to engage the uninitiated on that topic. And that's a hard case to build from from the ground up. We spent uh, two
3: hours building it two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, it takes a while.
2: <sighs> so anyway. It's part of my frustration right i had did i mention this was i on the podcast i mentioned this my my issues with uh people describing christianity and judaism as monotheistic um i think i said that on the podcast so yes just more references to that um but anyway this is why you see in the exodus story god fighting with the gods of egypt there's a reason the movie was called gods of egypt you know like <laughs> Uh, it's it's very very clear. There is really no no debate here about in the scripture. God is explicit about this. I'm doing this well, to prove myself better than the gods of Egypt. And
3: the f- the first command that kind of implies it. We take it as a monotheistic statement retroactively, right? But it's mm-hmm. not right. You shall have no other gods before me. Doesn't mean there are no other gods. What it means is, if there are or if there aren't, I'm yours, right? And so that can be a monotheistic statement, but it can also be, and I think we referenced this in our first, literal, our first conversation we ever had, it's henotheism. It's the idea that there are other gods, but that we have a specific God, and that's the one we're committed to following.
2: And if you here we go, another tangent, but just to prove the just to make that point that I'll, I'll forego that comment, even though it's interesting and ties back to something we talked about last week. doesn't matter. I might make it later. Just to make the point. Not until recent history have we seen not just leaders. But election, and when I say election, I purely mean democracy, democratic election, as a, as a human endeavor. Because what was, what was the thought? Well, so-and-so rules because they are declared by the gods as worthy. And then their son, who be, because of lineage is also declared worthy is going to rule after that there is no and i brought this up think about when jesus is handed the coin when when they come to him and they ask him should we pay taxes right they're trying to trick him but he's just too smart and he says give me a denarii bring me a coin on that coin And this was part of the propaganda that went with being Roman and being under Caesar. On that coin, it said, Son of God.
4: So, the Son of God,
2: Jesus, the true Son of God, is holding the coin, a Roman coin, with the imprint of Caesar on it that declares him to be the son of God. And he holds that up and says, whose image is on this coin? And they say, Caesar. And then what does Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. If he wants his money, fine. But whose image are you made in is
4: the question. He can't have have
3: me. That's the response. He can have he can have his money, but he can't have me.
4: He can't That's have right. you.
2: And we forget this. We forget this all the time because we live in Western society. Because yeah. we've grown up in it for the past and for the past few hundred years, we as America, for better or worse, have been exporting democracy to the rest of the world, or at least attempting to. And that with that comes with. That comes with the defamiliarization with ancient and not so ancient civilizations that called their rulers, God.
3: So um, to further that point a little bit, and I'll try to be brief Um, around the time of the Protestant reformation you have. So I've been reading a lot of Luther recently, because we're at this point in my history of Christianity class. Um, And, there, there's a really interesting dynamic that happens between the, um, the traditional Western Chalcedonian church that stands and that becomes the Catholic church. And then you've got the reformers who are in the Western Chalcedonian church who then become the Protestants and kind of rebel against that Catholic establishment, right? Um, so,
4: Luther is an act of rebellion against the Pope.
3: And within the way society had been developing for some time, actually a few hundred years at that point, you had the Pope who was ordained by God and had religious and spiritual power. And then you had the worldly power who was supposed to be subject to the Pope because the Pope had spiritual power. And Luther actually argues that The worldly power is also ordained by God in areas of the world and should then impose its will over the spiritual power because the worldly power, the the ruler of the state, has been appointed by God, just like you're saying, and should then deal with corruption in and outside of the church equally. right? Because there was a lot of problems with corruption in the church, backdoor deals, things like that. And so even within the Protestant Reformation that we then we now have like retroactively gone back and think, okay, well that's where democracy, democracy and separation of church and state all start. No, actually, it was the, the Catholic movement with the Pope centralizing power under him where that idea kind of started first cropping up. There was a lot of corruption therein and some things get shifted around. And only later does that actually switch to the Protestant side. Um, And so, yeah, separation of church and state is a very recent idea, especially in practice. Um, And rooted in Protestant traditions, it actually doesn't go back nearly as far as we think.
2: Just to make one more point. This does not mean modern politics doesn't have its own religious flavor. I'll just I'll leave it at that. That's all I'll say.
3: Yeah, don't 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 let me open that can, please.
2: All right, let's get started. So, what we're going to react to today? Sermon by Rob Bell. Now, when I say Rob Bell, your alarms might go off, and you might think. Ah, I, I figured it out, Luke and Daniel. They're actually, you know, they they were liberals in the closet, and now it's even more clear. They don't <laughs> like hell. They don't like original sin, and Rob Bell's their guy. They're, they're going to hell. They're going to be consci- consciously, eternally tormented, and I knew it all along. They were just uh, crazy, talking about deconstruction. And it's uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, and uh, false prophets, false prophets, false teachers, and that's why they talk about the egregore. Anyway, I'm I the bit is losing its uh, losing its steam. <laughs> uh, this is old Rob Bell, by the way. This is like tw- two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, no, no, it's even earlier than that because this is him at Willow Creek when Willow Creek was still a thing. <laughs> Uh, this is like early early two <clears> thousands. I mean, just look at that blonde hair, dude. Uh,
3: yeah. Woohoo. Uh,
2: yeah, it's probably this is at the latest like oh five. So, this is prior to Love Wins and all the stuff that set the evangelical world on fire, because Rob Bell tempted to flirt with universalism, which, by the way some of our greatest church fathers origin have been fighting about universalism for a very long time so now, and I'll, that's I'll say nothing this. new
3: I read um, last semester I read origins on first principles in almost its entirety um, and now when you say origin the, the natural thing is to say oh well he was declared a heretic yes Depends later on he you was ask, though well, yeah, but by all almost all the church groups that descend to this day, he was declared a heretic. But it was actually not on that topic, and it was because of a misunderstanding. And it had to deal more with monasticism than it did yep. on his soteriology. Yep. yep. So um, I'm not a universalist, and I won't argue for universalism. I mean, we've been on here talking about um, annihilationism.
2: Annihilationism. annihilationism.
3: So... I mean, yeah, you know, right. And even in that episode, I think I even said that I'm somewhere between the spectrum of conscious eternal torment and annihilationism. Um, and in conversation I've sort of used the term degenerative annihilationism because I think that that reflects it most accurately. But anyway, all of that to say, I don't agree with that perspective that Rob Bell eventually takes that then becomes the controversy right but i also don't agree with all of the early church fathers that i've read on things that most evangelicals will disagree with we'll get to some of those later probably um so life is a bit more sophisticated and complicated than that Um, and yeah
2: yeah i want to make comments about cancel culture but uh that they are neither here nor there at the moment. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can read between the lines on that one. Um, yeah. So this is early, early Rob Bell. Any of his sermons you hear from Willow Creek, well worth listening to. They're f- fantastic. Um, I want to focus on this one because it goes with what we were just discussing about uh, political th- theology, uh, cognitive environments of the day and how the New Testament, specifically Revelation, uses those things. So again, Daniel, if you want me to pause, just say pause. At any point, we can stop and discuss. Um, oh, twofold here. I want us to discuss the importance of how he's laying this out, and also kind of do a analysis, a presentation analysis, because I'll go ahead and say it. I've said this before. I said this to you privately, but mm-hmm. I'll say it again on air so it lives forever. Rob Bell, especially early Rob Bell, might be one of the, I'll put it this way, might be one of the best Christian communicators I've ever heard. He's phenomenal. Okay? And you're you're gonna about you're about to see why. Uh so All that said, let's just get started. The audio on this video isn't great. I'm going to try and fix it for you guys listening and post. Daniel, it should be good enough for us to get through. So,
1: I've got mom power tonight. Okay, now I need to take you some places, and i got a lot of ground we have to cover, and I've taken you on a journey, and you are going to have no idea where we are going, but hang with me. I don't know how that will separate that from the other.
2: Can you hear it well enough? Yeah. Okay.
1: Other times I've been here, but nevertheless, just stay with me, okay? I'll try. Thank you. Thank you. That's a really, really huge boost of confidence for me. Okay, now let's start here. We'll start in the city of Ephesus at the end of the first century. If you're taking notes, E-P-H-E-S-U-S. Ephesus, or Ephesus or however you want to say it. This is a, a pile of rocks in Ephesus. Oh, all right, let's go to the next slide. Uh, no, no, this is the ruins in the ancient city of Ephesus of what was called the Agora, A-G-O-R-A. Let me hear you say Agora. Now, Agora was like a marketplace, buying and selling of goods. Now, Ephesus was like a city that, like a bridge city that, ex- that held together. It had the east to one direction, the west to the other. And these were vastly different worlds. Now at this time, the world was ruled by the Roman Empire, which at one point stretched all the way from Britain to India. So you had this massive world empire, and at the edge of this empire was Ephesus, which was a gateway to the east. And the east, Asia, is where you had silks, spices, fabrics, all sorts of natural goods, which the west, like Rome and the western world, did not have. And so Ephesus was this world center of buying and selling where all of these goods that came from Asia that were needed by the Western world were bought and exchanged and transported. Now, Ephesus is fascinating because they...
2: Okay, I want to make two notes really quickly. Mm -hmm. He jumps right into history. One, well, three notes then. One, he jumps right into history. I skipped a little bit ahead because he makes some jokes about his mom being in the building. That's where the phrase I have mom power tonight comes from. Um, <laughs> no, like, here's the text for the evening. Just right into, all right, what's the setting is what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Right. He's building setting right now. <clears throat> There's one. Two, you heard him do, and it was very quick. He, You heard him do the call response thing that happens a lot in church right? Can I hear you say whatever? And then the audience responds being like keeping their attention for one, but two, he had them respond to the historical setting that he's trying to build. So he's implanting in their mind setting and three, uh, he's talking about East and West and he's he's a guy that talks a lot with his hands, which is fine. Uh, It's actually a useful thing for him because he can depict uh For you see, Peterson do this a lot because he talks with his hands quite a bit. But he'll talk, you know, east, west. It was in the center. Uh, You'll see him use body language a lot and how he communicates in his hands to specify direction. Um, So, yes, it's just he's he's using the and the call response thing that caught my attention. He's using a church trope, let's say, to get his audience to buy in on the historical setting he's trying to
3: build. So um, I noticed that. And another thing that I thought was really good is one of his first lines was we're going to go on a journey. And what that does is it sets the audience's expectation to, okay, he's going to take us somewhere we are currently not. We are going to an alien location, a place that we are unfamiliar with. And now we're, we're ready for that. And I think that framing right off the bat is really, really good. I preached a sermon recently towards the beginning of January. Um, first time I preached in quite some time. And I opened up with saying, I'm going to make the familiar unfamiliar. And then I proceeded to speak in Hebrew, quoting the Bible. It's a verse that they've heard a hundred times. But when I say it in Hebrew, it catches them off guard. And they're paying attention because they're like, what the heck is this guy doing? Right? Yeah make the unfamiliar familiar, or make the familiar unfamiliar in order to then reinsert meaning into it that it originally has, but then we've taken out of it. Right? And so I'm trying to build something back up that we've deconstructed, um, inadvertently, and probably because of ignorance or laziness. And so, yeah, that rhetorical technique of setting the audience's expectation of this is going to be new, this is going to be different, this is going to be away right off the bat, I thought was really, really good. Because then when he starts to build those, his, that historical environment and he gets the audience involved in that, he's already
4: set their mind in that mode. And that I think is excellent. They were ruled
1: at the end of the first century by the Roman emperors who believed they were gods. And the Roman emperors had a tradition of demanding that the subjects of the kingdom worship them. And so one of the ways they enforced and taught emperor worship was that in order to buy and sell in the Agora in Ephesus, you had to first make an offering to the Caesar. They would have stands where you would make an incense offering. If you're taking notes, incense is something you want to catch. They would make an incense offering to the Roman Empire emperor, acknowledging the emperor as God, as a god on earth, a god incarnate. And then once you had offered incense to the Caesar, you could then buy and sell. And so there's all sorts of fascinating discussion in the ancient literature about how exactly you could tell who had offered incense, and who hadn't. Most people believe, scholars believe, there was some sort of mark that you were given, maybe even some sort of ink stain on your hand to demonstrate that you had worshiped the Caesar, acknowledged Caesar as God, and you could now take part in commerce. Now, uh, the Jews and the uh, Jews who become Christians at the end of the first century didn't really groove with this. Since there was something I also have to make the point.
2: So he sets the scene, setting. Ephesus, where is it? What is it? Why is it important? What's east and west? It's a center for trade. Okay, what does it mean to trade at Ephesus? Oh, this is involved in emperor worship, which is going to be something that is a major portion of what he just talked, what he's talking about. So. Not only, all right, let's talk about emperor worship in the first century, which he could have started there if he wanted to, Mm -hmm. but let's talk about commerce, because we all know what it's like to go to the grocery store and buy something, or go get new clothes, or go uh, out to eat, or whatever. Commerce, something we all do every day. Okay, now I'm going to connect it to an idea that was very relevant to them, that's not relevant at all to us you don't have to worship the president to go and get gas. This is not a thing. But in that world, it was a thing. And we need to know that. Mm-hmm. Plus, he's, sub- he's subtly playing with ideas of, revela- of revelation, obviously. But, you know, mark of the beast. All right, we'll get to that later. But anyway, yes. So setting something we're all familiar with, buying and selling and then how does that connect to the ancient world well in very specific ways that have to do with something that he is going to focus heavily on
3: yeah and so what he's doing is he's using the the rhetorical technique of taking the familiar and using it to explain the unfamiliar which is the opposite of what i was just describing that i did about almost two months ago now um Whereas I took something familiar and made it unfamiliar in order to build off of the unfamiliarity in a different direction than we normally go. Um, and I think that that is a really, really, um, both can be useful, but it's crucial to know when to do what, right? And his, yeah, it's, he's doing really, 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 um, Clever, and it's not tricky. It's not deceptive. It's constructive, and it's helping to reveal his point. Revelation. That's ironic. Um, as he's as he's going forward. So
1: yeah. About this, that wasn't one of God's more. Uh, God didn't really like this, and so they said that if there's anybody who says-
2: Oh, sorry, and then the greater move he just makes in that little transition is, okay, so this was the ancient world and commerce, and how did those two factors apply to Christians?
1: Mm -hmm. Worship me, other than God, this person has set themselves up as a God, and they are in fact in direct opposition to the real God. And so they said that anybody who says worship me has to be operating in the power of the devil who they referred to as a dragon. And so they said that anybody who says worship me other than God, the word they used in apocalyptic literature is they called this person a beast. So the question in Ephesus at the end of the first century is do I take the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell? (laughs) Now, imagine...
2: And he does that because he knows that he just messed with how you think about revelation.
3: In what was that? So I think we started at what two, two and a half minutes. So in two and a half minutes, he completely subverts all of our theories about microchips and credit card numbers and cell phones and in vaccines and the way in which we currently conceive of the mark of the beast abstracted from its time and place in a historical reality that is different from ours. And he places it back in that time and place in historical reality that's different from ours. And it speaks volumes.
1: Imagine you're a seamstress. You have five kids, six kids. You take fabrics from the East and you make clothing, you make dresses. This is how you feed your family. You become a Christian. You come to believe in the God of Israel, who has come and announced the kingdom of God and Messiah Jesus. And you commit yourself to becoming a follower of Jesus and worshiping the one true God. You've been redeemed and joined this revolutionary community. And you show up at the Agora, and they say, you don't have the mark. You need to go back to the altar and offer incense. What do you do? What does the farmer do? What does the person who makes shoes do? What does the silk dealer do who's a Christian? I got to feed my family. I, I mean, they're hungry. Do I take the mark of the beast or not? This was life at the end of the first century in Ephesus. Now, we need to do a little bit of review here, and I want to introduce you to the Caesars and how this intersects with the Scriptures. So let me show you a list of the Caesars. The first Caesar was Julius Caesar, ruler. And he just
2: telegraphed his transition. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: We're going to review. I need you to hang on a little bit long. This is the subtext of what he's saying. We're going to review for just a second. Uh, I need you to hang on a little bit longer. We're going to make it to the Scriptures. Don't worry. I'm not just doing a history lesson. I'm going to yeah. intertwine it with something that you, at the very least, expected to come to church and hear. Yep. But I need to do something else first. Yep. So,
3: and what's super interesting, right, is he's revealing all this information that's building a historical context. And then what I expect to happen in a minute, and we'll see if it's true, is that when he starts to read, you notice things that you didn't the last time you read it.
1: Of an empire, inventor of a haircut. I came up with that joke last night. It's pretty good. You think so? Okay. Oh, that was, that was, that was so lame and cheap. I, I <laughs> can't believe it. Okay, so you have Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar rules till roughly 44 BC. Then the kingdom's divided, and there's all sorts of um, battle, and, and eventually Augustus takes over in 27 BC. Now, when Julius Caesar dies, a comet appears in the sky and 12 witnesses step forward and say we saw a comet in the sky augustus caesar's son seized upon this and said of course you saw a comet that was julius caesar ascending to his right place among the gods in heaven so the phrase that he popularized was I saw the Son of God ascend to the right hand of God the Father. Anybody? I think I've heard that before somewhere. So now, from Augustus' point of view, if Caesar is God, then that makes Augustus who? The Son of God. So he began a systematic campaign to show everybody that he was in fact The Son of God, a God incarnate, sent to earth to bring about universal peace and prosperity. Now, if you study the ancient poets, sometime around the turn of the century, a massive amount of prophecy, not biblical, but like pagan world philosophy, especially a poet named Virgil, were prophesying, due to the stars and the astrological alignments, that something major was about to happen in the course of human history. Can I get an amen? Okay, but nevertheless, they didn't know what it was. They just knew something big was coming. You can find this, once again, we're way outside the Bible here. You can find this all over, and they prophesied that somebody was coming. Pause. Awesome. Are we preaching yet? Somebody.
3: We're way outside the Bible. Extra biblical texts help us learn. They enrich. I will live and die by that word. Enrich our understanding. This isn't demeaning the Bible at all. This isn't nullifying our understanding. It's making it better. Because now we understand what Jesus, I will be seated at the right hand of the Father. He's referencing the book of Daniel and he's referencing Augustus Caesar at the same time. That's brilliant. It's brilliant.
4: And without extra-biblical sources to enrich our
2: understanding,
4: we wouldn't know that.
2: And he's, with his comment, where have I heard that before? Mm
4: -hmm.
2: He's he's not making it explicit. He's drawing your mind to what he knows he's telegraphing, Mm -hmm. biblical allusions. And even with this, they didn't know what was going to happen, but they had this sense, right? They were keen in on something true. So he's not using the extra biblical text or environment to bring down the Bible. He's using it to enrich the Bible. He's also, and it's so genius, in this subtle way, making the Bible more true. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's not a dichotomy of, well, the Bible's true and this is true, although that is part of what he's saying. But he's saying, no, 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 the Bible's true. And even this thing over here imports into the truth that we have in the Bible.
1: Somebody is coming (laughs) who's going to mediate between heaven and earth and who's going to bring about a shift in the universe and the human condition. And so there were a whole series of prophecies and poems an oracle circulating in the pagan world that something big was about to happen. Somebody was about to come. So when Augustus took the throne, the question the Roman Empire posed to him and the poets and oracles and prophetesses posed to him is, are you the one who is to come? Later, a doctor named Luke tells a story about A teacher named John the Baptist who says to another teacher, are you the one who is to come? So.
2: Different Messiah stories.
4: Mm -hmm. Dune.
3: Gosh, good old Dune.
2: I mean, that could be its whole episode, how Frank Herbert does prophecy and fulfillment maybe it's worth it at some point
1: Augustus inaugurated a celebration of his divinity and his arrival as the one that had been prophesied he had a 12-day celebration called an advent <laughs> on the first day of christmas on the, he had a 12-day celebration called an advent i'm not making this up the choir the hint, the youth of the Roman empire sang hymns to him proclaiming his eternal reign as the son of god come to earth to mediate between heaven and earth and bring about a universal reign of peace and harmony. Harm-
2: okay. Sorry, I keep I'm pausing this way more than I thought I would. But like I said, did I lie? He's 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 great. Like his presentation, his oratory skill is maybe bar none, bar none. Um, So he brings up the point about Advent and 12 days. And you think, oh, Christmas. And then he makes a joke on the first day, right? And you Mm -hmm. laugh because you're like, oh, that's making explicit, the reference here that we all get. But like, it's also Christmas and it's 12 days being Advent, right, is the song. And then then he talks about how what we conceptualize as christmas is the son of god coming down to usher in a new kingdom to bring peace on earth the things we sing we sing about in our christmas carols right are the same things that were being sung about in the roman world about augustus but it you but he makes the connection more explicit with his joke about on the first because he brings up things we sing about at Christmas and then he references things that are sung about at Christmas
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they predicted that lions would lay down with lambs they used nature language about this universal reign. they talked about joy and salvation he minted coins that said this one of the popular phrases that was spread was there is no name save August Augustus, by which men can be saved. There is no name save Augustus by which men can be saved. His priests, during the 12 days of his Advent proclamation, offered sacrifices and gave the people incense. They could offer incense for the forgiveness of their sins and past guilt provided by the Son of God, Augustus. Emperor worship was huge and went to the ends of the earth. Now, Tiberius, um, Augustus, is succeeded by Tiberius. A bit of a problem, though. Julius Caesar dies, Augustus dies, and by 37, Tiberius dies. There was a group of revolutionaries following a Jewish rabbi who then posed this question to the Roman Empire. Hey, 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 your dude died. (laughs) Your next dude died. Next dude died. Our dude lives. (laughs) That that would be like church history in like a blip, but (laughs) that's what happened. That's what happened. I mean, that's what happened is this group of Christians said your your universal reign of peace and joy your tiberius died your augustus died our king lives like one writer um, a a rabbi named paul even said like 500 of us saw him he appeared to a whole bunch of us because they were arguing from history your dude dead our dude lives so this continued and each emperor took emperor worship and tweaked it a little bit
2: and one rabbi named paul wrote about at least five hundred of a song. He's still de- to use a, for a, a phrase we love to use nowadays. Uh, he de- he's defamiliarizing, even explicit mm-hmm. scriptural reference. Right, that's yeah. what he's been doing in the twelve minutes. He's been setting up this whole thing. Yeah, he well, hasn't read from the Bible yet.
4: It's it's a constant. Um,
3: it's a reconstruction of the world. That way, then he imports the scripture back into it it means something it means what it always has meant that we've just missed and he's he's showing us that and he's also showing us how many cultural relics we have that are significant but we've lost the relevance of their significance and that's one of the things that i think studying the history of christianity has really done is it's taught me how much we've lost in ignorance and it's not that we can't find it out It's so we don't do a good job of teaching people it and we don't do a good job of making them care about it in an attempt to make the group as big as possible we've dumbed down the common denominator And that's not inherently a bad thing, right? I want more people in the church, but I don't want them to be so easily manipulated and fooled by a counter message that
4: is counterfeiting as the real gospel. And that's what this combat's against.
1: Modified it and morphed it according to his particular political needs. Nevertheless, tonight I want to fast forward, because we could spend forever on this stuff, but I want to fast forward to an emperor. Let me show you the list again. An emperor named Domitian, who's third from the bottom. D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N. And Domitian ruled from 81 to 96. Let me hear you say Domitian. Tonight I want to focus in on Domitian. And this is where... Wait, can you see this? Okay. Domitian, let me show you a picture of him was a bad dude. Evil, evil, evil. He demanded that his wife refer to him as my Lord and my God. So you like him already, don't you? (laughs) He issued an imperial edict that all statues of him from then on had to be made in solid gold. He began letters, um, our Lord and our God commands you. He saw himself as a god on earth. He believed that he was the son of the gods brought to earth to bring about universal peace and salvation. He demanded to be worshiped. Everywhere he went, he had a choir of 24 singers who would go before him and after him, singing and chanting, our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor.
3: So I'm always in the middle of a thought here. Um, but what really stands out to me um, in in that is the way that that contrasts the messianic secret we find in Mark. A lot of scholars really struggle with the idea that Jesus is constantly telling people, "Oh, don't let anyone know that I healed you. Don't let any, anyone know that I'm the Messiah." and I've never really thought that was a big deal for a variety of reasons that I won't get into, but that right there, that says something about the contrast between the empire that Domitian tries to build and the empire that Jesus tries to build, right? Because the empire that Jesus tries to build lasts after his death is still in his name
4: and brings glory to those that are the lowly. The empire that Domitian builds sets him up on a pedestal
3: and draws attention to him everywhere that he goes in an attempt to
4: bolster his ego. And then that ego crumbles. Uh,
2: Just a side note. I, I think I've I mentioned this to you off air, Daniel, uh, and I mentioned this to someone else recently. But uh, there's certain things that make me cry. One of them is cer- certain words. Not that a specific word triggers my tear ducts or anything. But if something is said just right, and it's so poignant, it th- there's this is this is what I actually don't like um, musicals, but that's a whole another discussion. Um, uh, great dialogue or great words or great writing, there's something about that that um, stirs my emotions. So just being said, if I start to cry at some point in this sermon, don't don't be shocked. Um, But yeah, I'm gonna back up just a little bit.
1: Everywhere he went, he had a choir of 24 singers who would go before him and after him singing and chanting, Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor, glory, and power. Everywhere he went. You can find little fragments of Domitian incidents in the historical accounts. One of them says that he was at a gladiator match, which he loved to watch. He loved to watch death and destruction. And one of the gladiators was being heckled by somebody in the crowd. To which Domitian pointed to the person in the crowd and says, you, in the ring, have him fed to the animals. Like that. He, uh, one of the priests of the empire offended him. And so he had her buried alive. There was one people group called the Nazamians who offended him. And so his response to what they, how they had offended him was, I cease to permit them to exist. Boom, wipe them out. There was a revolt called the Saturninus Revolt. And in a corner of his empire, some people revolted. So he responded by, of course, killing and slaughtering them all. But then, in order to make sure that everybody understood what happened when you revolted under them, is he brought in some of his main ruling officials, invited them to his palace for a meal, and set the table in front of each of their plates with their tombstone. Just a real warm, fuzzy kind of guy. Can you see this? So you ate dinner with your tombstone facing you, just as kind of a subtle reminder <laughs> of what happens when you revolt against Domitian. And we could go on and on with stories, evil, evil, evil. Let me show you another picture of Domitian, because there's a couple details here. And if you're taking notes, try to get these details down, or at least uh, in his hand, he has what looks like a scroll. Now, a scroll is key to the ruling of a Caesar. A scroll would contain writing on both sides of all of the divine names of the Caesar. Names were big, language was big in keeping and holding power. So a Caesar would have a scroll, literally or symbolically, that was symbolic of all the names and reasons and rights and entitlement this Caesar had to rule. And the scroll was symbolic of the fact that this Caesar was the only one who was worthy to open the scroll, meaning, figuratively, to rule human history. There's only one Caesar and this Caesar can open the scroll, can declare his godness, and can rule and direct the course of human history. Now, Domitian inaugurated a celebration, a series of Olympic Games, which he creatively called the Domitian Games. He had like his own Olympics in his honor. So picture a stadium, 60, 70,000, 80,000 people who would come to his Olympics. His Olympics would begin by the leaders of the various provinces coming to report and appear before him. He would then address each of the leaders of the various areas who reported to him, he would say to a leader, to you, the leader or the elder of such and such province, I have this for you, Enlist list the things, and I have this against you. If you do not stop doing these things, I will come and snuff you out. I will take care of you. And to you, the elder of such and such, I like what I see here and here and here. Well done. But I have this against you. And if you do not fix this and this and this, I will come and wipe you out. To you, the leader, the elder, the overseer of this area, this province, this region, I have this against you. I have this for you. But if you don't stop doing this, this, and this, I will wipe you out. So he would go through and address the various regions. Then they would begin the worship portion by worshiping Domitian. He had a group of priests who were employed to lead the masses in their worship of him. The priests and those who attended the games all wore white. If you're taking notes, the spectators and the priests dressed in white. Second detail, the priests would wear crowns of gold on their head. And their crowns would have written on the forehead the divine titles of Domitian as a way of reminding everybody that these priests' job was to lead all of you, the masses, all the people gathered, in worship of Domitian. And so you would stand with 60, 70, 80,000 people, and you would shout and cheer and worship Domitian in the midst of his games. Let me show you some of the things that were part of the worship liturgy of Domitian. Next slide. They would shout, Great are you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive honor and power and glory. Worthy are you, Lord of the earth, to inherit the kingdom. Lord of Lord, highest of the high. Lord of the earth, God of all things. Lord God and Savior for eternity. This is not a man who had an ego problem. (laughs) I think we're pretty clear on that. So imagine you're an eight-year-old kid. You get to go to the Domitian Games and you take part dressed in white, crowns of gold on their head, the people shouting. He addresses the various regions, reminds them all of his power and strength and his ruling. And then you would chant and shout with the priest leading you. This was the Domitian Games. The highlight, one of the highlights of the Domitian Games was a horse race involving four horses of four different colors. (laughs) At the end, they would have gladiator matches, and a lot of people would kill each other, and that was kind of the highlight. Then, at the end, somebody would come out, and they would clean all the dead bodies of the animals and fighters out of the ring. And the person who cleaned these all out would wear a mask of a classic hero. The mask was the mask of a hero called Hades, who was also called Death in the ancient world. And Hades, who was called Death, would come in and clear all of the dead bodies and corpses out of the rain. This was Domitian, and this was Domitian's empire. And everywhere you went, you were reminded coins, or a huge way that you were reminded that Domitian is lord of heaven and earth. Notice this from an ancient poet who is telling you about what Domitian was like. He, Domitian, loved to hear hail to the Lord. Domitian employed poets to write poetry about him. One court poet, may I gaze upon thee hope of mankind and favorite of the gods. So he had people on his payroll whose whole job was to write poetry about how great he is. This was Domitian and this was the ruler of Ephesus at the end, and the empire at the end of the first century. Now, he's done that twice. This was Domitian,
2: and these were his games. This was Domitian, who employed people to write poetry about him, reminding you, as an audience member, we're not talking about Jesus. here. This was Domitian. This was the story Domitian was trying to tell.
4: He's working a counter... Well, he's working the cultural narrative.
3: And it's pretty obvious at this point, I think. The author of Revelation is working a counter-narrative.
4: Um... How how far we missed the mark in our interpretation.
1: As all of you know, when you want everybody to worship you, you've got to have a headquarters. We've all been through this. So he had to pick a city which would be like his world headquarters. The Greek word is neokoros, N-E-O-K-O-R-O-S. And he decided, for various reasons we don't have time to get into, to pick the city of Ephesus as his neokoros. All back. like the headquarters for his world worship and he understood the power of image and the power of picture and so he decided to build a platform now next slide his father had built a platform his father's name was Vespasian Vespasian has a couple fascinating details about his life Domitian's father Vespasian was in a battle I believe it was in Judea where he suffered a fatal head wound and miraculously lived to tell about it. <laughs> he was referred to as the, the beast who survived a near fatal head wound. Where have I heard that? Where have I heard that? Where have I heard that? So Vespasian had built the statue, but Domitian made it bigger. So in the city of Ephesus, he built a platform. Wait, you see the size of this thing. He built a massive, massive platform and a temple to himself. Now, can you see the arches, the openings, below the platform? Can you see what look like statues etched in the columns? Can you see those? Okay, there are 24 of those. And those are the 24, those statues are of the 24 gods and goddesses of the Greek Roman pantheon. Zeus, Poisedon, Hermes, Apollo, um, Demeter, the main gods. So as you can tell by the design, he stands on the backs of the gods he's telling you something remember in the ancient world especially the eastern world pictures and images and metaphors are how you communicate things so he wants you to know that he stands on the back on top of that he built a 27 foot tall statue here's a picture of it in a museum to this day it's been preserved The arm alone
3: he's standing on the backs of the 24 gods He's submitting, or forcibly submitting, all of the egregores to himself. Right. All of these. How do they
2: refer to him in the poetry? God of gods. Mm-hmm. The most high.
3: Most high. Um, and so I think Let that me, there's. Go ahead. I just think that there's some interesting, um, interesting concepts there with our previous conversation about egregores, right? Um,
4: they compete. And here you can see that one is currently winning,
3: right? In this setting. And there's, there's no peace between them because they're all pulling and vying for attention and allegiance and power. Um,
4: so yeah, I just wanted to make that that observation.
2: Okay, I'm going to read something really quickly. This is Luke chapter eight. I'll start in twenty six. We talked about the previous section in our episode about Jonah, by the way.
4: Mm.
2: Then the, this is right after Jesus comes the storm, and they get across. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he wore no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. That sentence itself is mm-hmm. worth a lot of contemplation. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son, of the most high i beg you do not torment me for he had commanded the unclean spirits to come out of the man for many a time it had seized him he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles but he'd break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert verse 30 jesus then asked him what is your name and he said legion for many demons had entered him And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged to let them enter those. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and a herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. You should have a bunch of bells and whistles going off from our conversation last week. What I want to highlight, verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus? And where's Jesus right now? He's in a Gentile area. They're herding pigs, quite obviously. They're at the country of the Gerasenes. Opposite of Galilee. Now, when Jesus is in Jewish areas, and Heiser brought this up, what does he refer to as? Son of God or uh son of david right you think about the blind man on the road son of david have mercy on me but he's also referred to as son of david with within uh within a exorcism tradition because well there's uh things about us salmonic and davidic tradition of exorcism by the way there's exorcism psalms in the bible this may be a whole nother episode in and of itself But Domitian, God of gods, the Most High, Son of God. But even in Gentile territory, even in Roman territory, we'll we'll get to this later, they cry out to Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me.
4: is somewhere around nine
1: feet long and absolutely a human comes up just below the chin and they stand right there absolutely massive statue now the idea behind the platform was if you came by uh, sea and you came up through the Mediterranean the Aegean Sea and you came into the port of Ephesus the first thing you'd see as you came into Ephesus was this massive 27 foot tall statue of Domitian reminding you that he is Lord of heaven and earth And if you came from Asia and came through the valley, the first thing you would see was this statue of Domitian reminding you that he is Lord of heaven and earth. But Domitian had a problem. He was powerful, obviously wealthy, obviously could kill anybody who got in his way. But he had a problem because in a corner of his empire, Ephesus, there were small group of people who refused to bow down to him. Can I get an amen? amen? And this made him furious. Notice what one historian says. A historian who I think is brilliant for his, uh, his insights as well as his name, Ethelbert <laughs> Stopper, said this. Domitian was the first emperor to understand that behind the Christian movement, there stood an enigmatic figure who threatened the glory of the emperors. Domitian was the first to declare war on this figure." So he did this. Next slide. In the city of Ephesus he had altars built. Here's one picture taken last uh, May of one of these altars. They were incense altars. And this is one of the main streets of Ephesus, this massive gleaming, like a Tokyo, London, Chicago of the ancient world. I mean, a massive marble, cutting edge of arts, knowledge, universities, medicine. Um, many believe that Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, was actually trained as a doctor in Ephesus. I mean, state of the art, high tech, cutting edge city. He would come through. Some believe it was on his birthday he would come through. He would proceed through. Remember the 24 going with him, our Lord and our God. You're Worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, and he would parade through the city, and then he would stop at the altars, and the crowd would all bow down and acknowledge him as Lord and God. Then they would proceed to the next altar, stop, and the crowd would bow down. And if you didn't, I mean, if everybody stood and then bowed down, and you didn't bow down, it's, they didn't bow down. Kill him. I mean, we weren't like messing around here. If like you can't let somebody defy you publicly, that might lead to something, so kill them. And everybody, I mean, if every, every, every everybody comes out and bows down to Domitian, otherwise you're killed. That's what the emperors do. When C- Julius Caesar took place, or Augustus took power, he instantly murdered 2,300 people, just to make sure there wouldn't be any problems. This is how serious, these are people who invented crucifixion, they're not messing around. So the question at the end of the first century, if I get that picture again, the question at the end of the first century is what do I do? What what do I do? Like Domitian's coming to town, His his birthday's tomorrow. And everybody from my guild, I work with stones or I'm a seamstress or all the other mothers from the school, everybody is showing up. You have to or you die. What do you do? Everybody's doing it. And if you don't, you die. What do you do? Now uh, there's some fascinating stuff, once again we're outside the Bible here, there's some fascinating stuff in the early documents that Domitian had some understanding that this little group of people who made him furious, this little Christian group, had some sort of leader. And if you could chop off their head, if you could get rid of their leader, you could leave them. Um, without a guide and eventually this movement would dissipate. So there are some sources that indicate or allude to Domitian calling their pastor in to meet with him and some believe it's Domitian who exiled the pastor to separate him from his flock. Now church tradition goes on and you can find other sources to say that while their pastor was in exile he wrote His church a letter. I brought a copy of it with me tonight (laughs) Notice Revelation chapter 2 Some of you may have a copy of this letter You may have been carrying this letter around for a while and all of a sudden you realize hey I've been carrying this letter around for a while Now notice what he says in this letter now that you understand who he's writing to when he's writing it and what's going on Now notice what he says in this letter. Now that you understand who he's writing to, when he's writing it, and what's going on. Now there's all sorts of fascinating discussion about where exactly they were. If he's-
3: Yeah, I'm glad you you rewound
4: that because it happens quick. Who, when, and what's going on.
3: Because that's what I said, right? You didn't let me watch this before we started recording. So I had technically no idea where he was going. But I knew we'd get here, right? Now that he's built the frame around it, he's taking what we've read a hundred, a thousand times before, and he's placing it in that frame, and boom. It means so much more. Because it... There's within the church and outside of the church, there is a stigma about the book of Revelation. It's confusing. It doesn't make any sense. It's terrifying. It's scary and it brings the end of the world. And now, what he's done is he's shown us that you can understand it, that it can make sense, but you have to put it in a particular time in a particular place for a particular people. Beautiful.
1: Saw this coming, if they were in the midst of it, there's all sorts of fascinating discussion about how intense it was and where on the time spectrum it is. Nevertheless, this is the time period this letter is sent, is right when Domitian is doing this. Notice Revelation chapter 2, um, like verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Notice verse 4, yet I hold this against you. Does this remind you of the language of anything Domitian did? Yeah. So somebody reading this instantly would be like, wait, 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 wait. That's the way they talk at the Domitian what? Oh, very interesting. By the way, when I showed you the agora in the very beginning, there was a group of Christians who, when they, you had to take the mark in order to buy and sell, had to offer incense in order to buy. There were a group of Christians who came along who said, come on, just offer the incense. It's not like a big deal. I mean, you gotta live, you gotta eat. So just, it's not, it's not like he's really a god. You know the whole thing's just a fake, it's just a political, it's just a guy with a really big ego and a lot of money and power and big armies. It's not, so a group of Christians who were saying to some of the other Christians, "Hey, just 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 take the mark. It's not a big deal. It's not like in your heart you really believe he's a god, but you got to eat, man. Come on. Forget the like kind of noble worship sacrifice elements. Just just do it cuz you got to feed your family." And so they were encouraging people to just go through the motions on the outside in order not to cause a stink. Don't draw any attention to us. Just go through it. You don't really believe it in your heart. They were called Nicolaitans. These people who said, come on, just offer the incense, not a big deal. Notice what he says in verse uh, six, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now notice chapter four. Oh my goodness. Okay, so he begins by addressing the various leaders of the various churches in the various provinces. And he tells them, I've got this for you, I've got this against you. And if you don't do this and get rid of this, I'm going to snuff out. I'm going to snuff you out. Mm -hmm. Then chapter 4. And you know what happens next in the Domitian games. Notice chapter 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. In the Domitian games, there was a massive throne that Domitian would sit upon. I saw a throne, and there was someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were, hmm, how many? 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in, and what's your text say? And they had crowns of what on their heads? Hmm. If all the lights on your dashboard aren't blinking right now, so something's <laughs> wrong. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven spirits. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and back. And you thought the matrix was strange. And the first living creature was like a lion. And the second was like an ox. And the third was a face like a man. And the fourth like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures would give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders would fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they would lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a what? With writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, including that chump Domitian, could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, psst, psst hey, hey, don't weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, not like a strong leader with a big army, not a really wealthy, wealthy leader who kills people, but a lamb looking as if it hit had been slain. And it was standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders and he had seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth and he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne and when he had taken it the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of what and which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song not the song you've been hearing them sing about the mission but they cooked up a new number and it went like this you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth not him them they'll reign on the earth and then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the loud voice they were singing Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I realized heaven, there's like a balcony because I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures say amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. what what is he saying you guys I've seen the throne of the universe and donation isn't on it God is don't bow down whatever you do he's a fake he's a fraud it's a setup don't do it right right I've seen it I've seen it and it's all a lie. I've seen the real thing. Whatever you do, don't bow down. I assume that the first people who heard this wept. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine an eight-year-old kid who'd been to the Domitian games? You knew exactly what John is talking about here, right? You knew exactly what he's saying. You knew exactly what language he's using to describe the one true God. He says, I've seen the real thing. And Domitian isn't the real thing. I doubt the first people said, man, we have to turn this into some novels. I imagine the first people wept, because they were real people in a real place, in a real time, who had friends and neighbors being slaughtered in the name of Jesus. And John is saying, better to die for God than live for some fake Domitian for god jesus and john are real t- wept because they were real people in a real place in a real time who had friends and neighbors being slaughtered in the name of jesus and john is saying better to die for god than live for some fake domitian Amen. We, we uh
4: Stop
2: there
3: shoot man
4: If that's not a punch in the gut. And like, see, this is what really gets me fired up about
3: people who say, you know, oh, the God of the Old Testament's all wrath, and the God of the New Testament is all love and, and joy and happiness and stuff. First of all, because the god of the new testament isn't
4: is asking very hard things of people too but this is the same god who asked abraham to make
3: a covenant and when abraham realized he couldn't live up to his end of the bargain walked the blood path for abraham in genesis 15 this is the same god who let Moses strike him to kill at the rock and water poured out. This is the same God who's in control of the universe, dethroning Domitian.
4: I mean, it, I don't even know how to follow that up. It's just Okay. One of the things that I really like that he did uh, is he drew specific lines from
3: the culture to the text. Like he made it concrete. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, well this applies back then the lines were explicit. And then when, when it gets revealed, right. And I think that's what we think of revelation is confusing, but that's the irony of, of the title, right. Revelation is supposed to reveal things. And in a time of hardship like this, when the people, the Christians in Ephesus under Nero are suffering and they're suffering hard It reveals to them the
4: glory of the one who's really in control. Yeah. hmm.
2: This is how you also preach politics in church.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
2: But you can't tell me some people don't see certain political figures as saviors. Mm Mm-hmm. January 6th was a bunch of things. I think it was also pretty religious. A religious insurrection, if you will.
4: Mm-hmm. Do, and, and the question that
3: Revelation is asking, the question that the Gospel of Mark is asking, for example, with its crucifixion narrative, right, are we going to serve the heavy-handed emperor who uses crucifixion, who, drinks, who refuses to drink wine mixed with myrrh at his coronation? Or are we going to follow the God incarnate and the rabbi of
4: an oppressed people refuses to drink wine mixed with myrrh at his coronation who do you serve
2: that note, let's read this passage first Daniel 7 I'll uh Hmm. Starting verse 8. This is Daniel's vision, one of his visions. There's also four beasts at the beginning of uh, 7, 1 through 8, by the way. Oh. Uh, <laughs> verse 9 As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him a thousand thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him where did we hear that phrase just now the court sat in judgment and the books were opened i looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. It sounds pretty annihilationist to me, by the way. Verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. And we know that these beasts are describing nations, by the way. By the way. As for the rest of the beasts. Their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, who does it sound like? His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed.
3: On the right in there, you can see the links between these two, and that goes to further our point. I the, mean, they're
2: intertextual um, links. they yeah, di- their time difference is immense. but
3: oh, absolutely. Um, the I mean, this is by at least they're separated by around two hundred years at least. Because
4: um, Daniel's probably the latest book we have in the Old Testament. Um, but, yeah,
3: I mean. The, the way that John in writing Revelation uses not only cultural setting, but literature familiar to his
4: audience is masterful. Absolutely masterful. One could almost say he's doing art. Um, and... Oh man, and how poorly we we miss it. We miss it so much.
2: I'll read that last part again from Daniel. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So they're different they're different figures in Daniel's vision, by the way. Obviously. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You could say he's worthy to open the scroll. Matthew 26. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven then the high priest tore his robes and said he utters blasphemy what further witness do we need you know i've heard this blasphemy what is your judgment and they answered he deserves death then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying prophesy to us Messiah, who is it that struck you? And one more passage, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the lamb that was slain. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are we preaching yet?
3: What I call that is a um, high christology of identity and the low christology of function
4: emptied himself became the form of a servant to die
3: for us and unite us with the father I, just thinking about that concept right and, and no wonder that to Jews and Muslims, other other monotheists, that's a scandalous idea, right?
4: No wonder to polytheists at the time, that was a ridiculous
3: idea, that someone so powerful would weaken themselves so much, limit their power so much to the point that they could suffer and
4: die at the hand of their creation. That's crazy. Who would do that? Someone who loves who they're dying for. It's, it's beautiful.
2: Very different kind of kingdom.
4: Very different kind of kingdom. Empire or shalom. And yeah, obey my language.
3: And but that is really the question, right?
2: Who is who is king? Who is seated, seated on the throne? Is it Domitian Mm -hmm. or is it Jesus?
3: And furthermore, are you going to live into that kingdom, right? Are you going to trust that Jesus is the one on the throne, the one worthy to open the scroll? Because if you do trust that, that means something about the way that you live. That means you don't receive the mark. You don't
4: offer the incense sacrifice. You don't bow in the crowd. And you risk dying. You risk dying like the bloody lamb, the Messiah, Son of God on the cross, to be a part of that kingdom. I hope I have that level of commitment. And, and that's, that's the enrichment that's brought,
3: right? When we bridge the gap from there to here. Because before, Revelation was just some crazy abstract thing with a bunch of weird symbols that terrify everyone because it means people are gonna start disappearing out of airplanes and the whole world's gonna go crap, right? Are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib?
4: Now we're asking different kinds of questions about how you live now and what that narrative does. I don't know if I have anything else to say. Just. We can end it here yeah i mean
3: i know that i mentioned bringing up my some stuff from class but it doesn't really seem relevant
4: um in in this situation um
2: I don't think I have anything. I was trying to think of a Lord of the Rings reference, but it doesn't quite fit. Um, Yeah, this is.
4: Actually, I do have... have one more. Just, just a second. Yeah.
2: All right, I'm just going to let this play for maybe a few minutes. This is, uh, I guess, bringing in all of what Rob Bell has said about the church in Ephesus, the Domitians, Domitian and emperor worship. I've seen who's on the throne, and it isn't Domitian. And as I said at the top of this podcast, it's different in a democratic, naturalistic, humanist world. But I don't think that that makes it irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
0: Um, discourse. They're true, but not scientific truths. The problem with the empirical approach, the problem with totalizing it is that the empirical approach tends to be mostly descriptions of things and the way they interact and the way they can be manipulated. And, and that's fine, but it doesn't tell you, it doesn't provide any real insight into how to live how to act how to take your next step how to how to produce a hierarchy of values and how to determine what's most important and what's least important and all of that is also so difficult that we actually don't know how to do it completely explicitly which is why we need poetry and drama and literature we need that whole domain so we could call that the literary domain and then i think You could consider it this might be an empirical proposition is that the religious domain is at the base of the literary domain and as literature gets deeper it becomes more and more like religious writing and so that by definition in some sense and i've swiped this in part i would say from jung is almost by definition that the sense of profound engagement that the most profound literature produces is what constitutes the religious. And that's a domain of experience. You know, when you're captivated in a movie theater, when you're captivated by a story, when you're taken outside yourself, none of that has anything to do with logical argumentation. It's a whole different issue. And to me, it's tied very, very deeply to our ability to imitate and mimic and so we're really good at that way better than any other animal we like like languages, mimicry, we use the same words. And so we're mimicking each other and, but I can't mimic every person separately. I have to extract out from each person, some essence of being that's admirable. And I do that person after person. And I try to imitate that. And then that core thing that's admirable that I imitate that's As far as I'm concerned, that's psychologically equivalent to Christ. Whatever else Christ is, Christ is, that's why he's sometimes described as the king of kings. It's like if the king is the thing that's at the top of the hierarchy, and then you look at all hierarchies and you take the thing that's at the top of all hierarchies of value, then that figure, when you see reflections of that figure anywhere, it produces awe and respect. And that's because that pattern constitutes the appropriate way to act. Just as when you see the opposite of that pattern, which might be, in its most fundamental essence, satanic or demonic, it's something that's ultimately evil that produces revulsion and terror. And that's that's all instinctual. It's it's not in the domain of rationality precisely. It's way way deeper than that. And the 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 atheist. And then there's another problem that the atheists have never come to terms with. I I believe. Then Caesar becomes inflated to God. And when that happens, all hell breaks loose. That's the genesis of totalitarianism. That's subservience to an idol. And so, and this is a case I think the church needs to make.
2: That's the question for our day. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: But remember, In John's day, it wasn't that Domitian was king, but the people saw him as God. Domitian was God, or thought he was God.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: There's the difference. But the reality still holds, because the question for those in Ephesus... Do I offer sacrifices? Do I worship Domitian? Or do I worship Jesus?
4: And do I really have to go through all the trouble? If I don't believe it here, I can just act,
3: right? I, I can just put on the show. I can make the sacrifice and get the mark on my hand and go to the market and buy the food for my children and go home and worship Jesus
4: myself. My allegiance really isn't to Domitian. Or is it? How much do you give up when not? And then honestly, I'm convicting myself right now. Right? I'm, I'm thinking about, do I really have to share my authentic opinion
3: about this controversial topic in class? Do I have to go through the steps supporting the points that I think? make my controversial opinion worth hearing
4: it's so much easier just to not respond to the question to not push the boundary shoot like i'm i might be walking away from this this conversation and yeah i'm that's convicting right cuz i go to an institution where
3: One of the things I love is that there are a ton of opinions in the room, but it definitely feels like that sometimes certain opinions aren't allowed. Maybe not institutionally, but culturally, right? So it's hard to say things. And I think that's in our culture more broadly.
4: So much easier just to shut up. But is that burning the incense and taking the mark on the hand. I don't know. I do know I'm going to think about that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What I don't, and I struggle with this, what I don't want this to turn into is to be misread as an encouragement that we should all become political activists and understand that statement however you'd like what I'm saying is what I hope is coming across it's two things
4: Jesus and John for that matter
2: are very political I don't think anyone necessarily on either side would disagree with that statement. But I also want to make the clear point, especially with that Peterson section there. The politics of our day demand different questions about Christians than they do in the days of John, at the very least. And I think in our time, this is my conviction, and feel free to disagree with me on this. This is my conviction, something that keeps me up at night sometimes.
4: Um, How do I describe this? My worry is that
2: there seems to be a divide and i will just talk about the church at the moment. And the church that well, you know what, Daniel, we said earlier we never get we not never, but we wouldn't try to be political in this podcast, but here we are. Um I see um <sighs> Hang on. I need I need another scripture reference here. And i'm gonna I'm gonna put it on the screen here because I figured for you people who are watching it'd be a little bit easier especially I'm gonna read bigger portions of scripture that you can see it too um John six he feeds five thousand he walks in water after he feeds the five thousand. I'll start, in, I'll start in verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves and when he gave thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when, he entered, and when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. To make him what? Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. We'll keep going because it's important. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the side of the sea, they had been on, there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they, had, and where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks, so these people he had done the miracle for. So when the crowd saw Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Why did they want Jesus? When they found him on the other side, to see it, they said to him, "Rabbi, when did you come here?" And Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not see- you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal." Then they said to him, "What must we do?" To be doing the works of God, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you want that we are to see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. But what did Jesus do the previous day? Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me. and Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, or your will, for that matter, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that is given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father. They grumbled, verse 41, because they said, I am the bread that came from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, son of Joseph? And then he talks about, truly, truly, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give of the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews dispute among themselves, saying, how, is, how can he give us his flesh to eat. I'll jump down to verse 66. So it gives us whole discourse about bread, manna, Abraham, true bread from heaven, bread that leads to eternal life. Belief in him that leads to eternal life. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Now remember, in this whole chapter, John tells a story. He feeds a bunch of people, real bread, real fish, and they're satisfied. Verse 15. Because of what he could do for them. Perceiving then what they were about, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. What did we just read about Jesus and Caiaphas in Daniel 7? Are you the Messiah? Tell me truly. Right? I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus answered him. You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Quoting Daniel 7. Ah. Ah. Okay, so what's going on in Daniel 7? He is given dominion, authority, power. What's about to happen to Jesus in Matthew 26? What do they say? Caiaphas asked them, what is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Mm, So the way that Christ becomes king is not... In John 6, the way the people
4: wanted to make him king.
2: But what is he doing even in John 6? Jesus goes, you know what? You come to me because I can do things for you. You want the miracles and you want more signs. Fine. But let me give you what it really means. Because you have this certain, and we talked about this the other week, think about how many people serve to you different narratives. Ah, you have this narrative. I can give you what you want. And this isn't the only time they try and force him to be king, by the way. And this doesn't mean that Jesus isn't king. But there's a certain way, and for certain reasons, that people wanted to make him king. And in this instance, because they can give him they, he can give them what they want. Then he goes on to describe to them, through Moses and through the manna, images of the Old Testament, ways in which he fulfills those things and is those things. And I don't think it's lost on readers of the Gospels that let's talk of body, bread, wine, flesh, is foreshadowing communion
4: and what happens at the
2: end of Jesus' discourse everybody leaves do they want to make him king anymore no because before they saw a certain thing and they saw something they liked and he could give them what they wanted which is all well and good. I think Jesus freely and lovingly, I think it even says in the Matthew account, he's, he had pity on them. He hurts for the people because they don't have food. So he feeds them. So feeding feeding people physically is important. And I'm not trying to make a dichotomy between spiritual and physical here. All I'm saying is, In our context, I think we're much like the people at the beginning of the story, many times in the church. We want to make Jesus be on our side of all our issues, for all the things we'd like, for all the reasons we want to vote for, whoever we want to vote for. And there's ways in which Jesus really subverts even I mean this story is one example but there are many other examples of Jesus subverting cultural messianic and Jewish leader expectations of what it means to have power. And I think the question for us and this is what keeps me up at night is that Do we really, do we really think that Jesus is king? Keep in mind, and I brought this up before, saying that Jesus is king, Jesus being king, being the lamb that was slain, worthy to open the scroll, it's not a democracy. We didn't vote him in. We actually voted to kill him, by the way.
4: He's not president. He doesn't have a cabinet. There's no state senators. We don't necessarily, in the sense that we would think about it, get a say. He's king.
2: The monarchy it's not a democracy do we really want that do we believe that and i'm not saying we aren't politically engaged i'm not saying we disengage from politics that's what this is this is the other side of the coin for me too this is what makes it difficult i think there's a specific reason that i that i am fascinated by someone like drip onhoff And you could paint him, at least Eric Metaxas does this. No, whether he does it in good faith or not, is up for debate. But there's a certain argument that could be made that Bonhoeffer's is a, I, I guess, let's put it this way. You can read Bonhoeffer as a um, fierce German nationalist, not in the sense that Hitler is a German nationalist. But in the sense that Bonhoeffer cares so deeply for the church at large, and for the people of Germany,
4: that he does what he does.
2: And he dies a martyr's death for continuing to lead the underground church, but also as a revolutionary against the state. These are things worth really thinking about. And not thinking about because your aunt posts something on Facebook. But, yeah, all that is to say, how do we Do we really want to make Jesus king in the way that he truly is, or do we just want to make him king in our own image because he gives us what we want?
3: Well, and that, that's the And ultimate. also,
2: sorry, but what, no. it, the reason I bring up Bonhoeffer is like, okay, at what level does like country interest or like a dirty word, nationalism, like play its role in... You could say preserving the country, preserving ideals, right? But this is – and this is also why I think Bonhoeffer is such a, such a fascinating case. And Luther, even before Bonhoeffer in German senses for that matter, right?
3: That's where I was going to go, actually. Um, I'm reading Luther right now.
2: Yeah, and we, you can go there in just a second. Yeah. But – and you can uh, – Metaxas makes this argument in the beginning of his uh, biography when he's <sighs> sketching Germany in the beginning. Um, it's and it's not even necessarily a controversial case but that uh, Luther uh, in translating the Bible in German like gives Germany a, na- a like consistent national German that is uh, consistent across the board so even Luther does a lot for Germany but all this is to say. Uh, I'll, I'll finish it by saying this. I guess, and this shows a little bit of my bias, and this is mainly because of the people I run into, like contact
4: with, and that quote from
2: Philippians. And what's apparent in Daniel 7 that Jesus alludes to in Matthew 26. Every nation, all tribes, all people are going to bow down to Jesus. So I don't want to have a Jesus that's only concerned about things that happen in America. Not that he's not, or not that we shouldn't be, but I'm all, I'm, again, I I just, and this doesn't come from a place that, that is, wants to belittle, I'm actually trying to I, my my there we go. Um, I'm trying to understand this more with, with people in my life, but I don't want the views of Christians on either side of the aisles. To be one in which Jesus is a vehicle for a political agenda. And I guess at this point in time, in the place that I'm at and the people that I'm with, people in my family, I see the political narrative of whatever's going on at the current moment being preeminent. But it's tough, because, and and I hope that you are reading no malice in that statement at all. As I said, I'm trying to understand these things, and I'm I'm a young man with without a family who doesn't who isn't as involved as some people are. And maybe if I was more involved, I'd have a different perspective. But when when Frodo and Gandalf are here, it comes. Here's the Lord of the Rings reference. When Frodo and Gandalf are are in. Uh, Or in the minds of Moria. Proto says to Gandalf, "I, I, I wish I didn't have the ring.
4: I wish it wasn't mine. And Gandalf basically says, so do
2: all people at all times. What we have to be concerned about is what we do with the time that is given to us. And in part, I take that and read. As we've been talking about with literature, in place and time. Well, so are we. We're people in place and time, and there's certain things going on, especially right now as it is, uh, what is today? February 24th, 2022. There's world events going on right now. When a particular time in a particular place, particular leaders, particular countries, particular beasts, Certain aggregors, spirits of age of the age, spirits of ages past, spirits in the church
4: that dominate,
2: and we can't deny our current time. I mean, as we just saw with John, what is he doing? He's addressing his current time. So, these are my struggles with politics as a christian and these are mine these are my struggles they don't have to be yours they're mine what do i do with this how do i engage in politics and be a christian because again we've divorced church and state and in some sense that makes it harder Then again, my again. I'm just telling you both sides of things that go on in my head, because I actually try and think about things. Well, Germany was a great example of what happens when you try and marry the two. Because you know what happened in the churches in Germany in the late 30s. They had to sign contracts of agreement. To not get in the way of the Third Reich.
4: And Bonhoeffer's church was one that didn't. That's why he went into exile.
2: And don't forget, just just to further the point that this gets really, I want to curse, but really, really complicated... Bonhoeffer was taught in in large part his for his uh higher education in America. And that did two things for him. One, uh obviously he learned English, but <laughs> two, uh he was a he was a big part of Harlem, in the plight of the African Americans, black people in America in the 20s and 30s.
4: That's something to think about, too. B,
2: he went back to Germany, even with everything going on, because he felt like he should be with his people, with his church. He talks about and this is interesting, even for interpretation. And sorry, Daniel, I'm just ranting at the moment. But no, you're good. Um, he talks about with Timothy, Paul telling Timothy, bring my coat for it is winter, as the verse that the Holy Spirit used to convince him to go back to Germany. So I don't know how to do this. And I'm figuring it out. But all I know is it's not Domitian that's on the throne. It's Jesus. And I'm not saying I'm the best at it. And I'm not even saying that my concerns are right. Don't read that either.
4: Maybe I'm wrong.
2: I also serve a Jesus who is subversive to say the least. Who, when asked by a lawyer, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then it gets asked, as is rabbinic tradition, who is my neighbor? tells a story of a good Samaritan. Samaritans being bitter enemies and in some cases oppressors of
4: Jewish people. Rivals.
2: And then when Jesus finishes he asked the lawyer, so who is most like a neighbor to this man?
4: And the lawyer says,
2: the one who is good to him. And you can read that as him telling of the character of the man or him using that descriptor because he doesn't want to say the samaritan. So and then you can think about all the things we've talked about in terms of Jonah that story too. Mm-hmm. So yeah I don't know and I might be wrong but I I hope I hope you you're listening not you Daniel I know you're listening but whoever is listening to this doesn't hear me and hear malice whatsoever these are these are questions I have and things I'm trying to figure out. Because, as I said, it's complicated. And I actually want to think about them. And this is maybe why I need to read more Bonhoeffer. But that's. That, that I did not expect to do any of that, but here we are. was beautiful.
3: I think it ties together several things that we've talked about over the course of the last what nine months, six, seven, eight, something like that. Uh, and yeah, I mean the the sermon that I was talking about earlier that I preached was on the Good Samaritan what is the greatest commandment. Um, and my goal in that, like I said, was to make the familiar unfamiliar. That way, I could take those words we've heard a hundred times before, "love God
4: and love neighbor," right, and make them mean something again. And I
3: love what you said. Um, we take in what you know, referencing Peterson. We take concept of God and make it in our image. And that destroys something. Does
0: away with something.
3: It becomes, and at some point I know we'll get further into this. We've already referenced it a little bit. It becomes gospels of sin management in many cases. And not true transformation. And one thing I'm wrestling with in reading a lot of Luther right now, and I'm about to read some Calvin and um, other theologies in that vein, um, is that they all talk
4: about faith being the primary thing. One of the things I think they missed though,
3: is that this, this gospel that John is living in and asking his people to live in in
4: late first century Ephesus isn't just about believing the right stuff. Right? I mean, that's, that's the critique. Oh, it's not what's in your heart. It's not what's in your head, right? You're just offering the incense. You're voting for this person because they stand for this,
3: even though they stand for this other thing that we don't really like that we're not gonna talk about.
2: Or they do this other thing.
3: Or they do this other thing that we don't approve of. We can compromise that in order to get this. This is what's really good.
4: And I'm not saying,
3: I mean, it's naive to say that it's a zero sum game, right? We have to ultimately make a choice, and not voting is, is also a choice, right?
2: And I would even argue maybe not the right choice. Yeah. Given and I our would, context. Yeah. Yeah. Again, and I, right? I would say that's where mm-hmm. this is diff- very, very Different. difficult. Yeah.
3: And I, yeah, I, I never think that not voting is the right choice. But we can't reduce the gospel to sin management. We can't make God in our political preference image. And we can't have a faith that is so shallow that it doesn't manifest itself in some kind of behavior. I'm not saying we're saved by works necessarily. What I'm saying is a faith that doesn't manifest
4: itself in behavior is worthless, to quote James. I don't care what side
3: of the equation you put it on. Is it faith plus works equals salvation or is it faith equals salvation plus works? If if works isn't a part of the equation,
4: something's wrong, right? Because we're not just called by Jesus to
3: believe something in our heads or hearts. We're called by him to live something
4: out.
2: Stay in mind of that. Hmm? Christ Jesus.
4: Yeah.
3: He's on the throne, not Domitian.
4: And what does that mean for the way that we behave? And again, Luther's acting in a very different time
3: and place. He's actually acting against a lot of things that were corrupt. right? And so I'm not bashing Luther's general idea in its place, because I think that it did have a time and place, and it did have a point to make in response to something.
4: But now I think we're also fighting a very different and opposite battle. where we need to make, we need to decide whether or not we're gonna offer the incense. Are we gonna play the game
2: I'll end with this, and since we're already on this topic, I think it it's a good way to close. So I've uh, talked about my church quite a bit on this podcast, and hopefully I'll one day get my pastor on here, if not more people in my church. And this is something that Jeremy has even said explicitly and alluded to from, from the We don't have a pulpit from the music stand (laughs) because we don't have a pulpit, Uh, but how boring, unhelpful. This is part of the reason of this podcast. How boring, how unhelpful if you only surround yourself with Christians that think exactly like you. Really? Is that unity in the body? Or is that just another game of exclusion? It's Worth asking. So, that's why. That's part of the reason that I love my church. I truly do. My local church in Springfield, Missouri. That I submit to. And I say, look. We all don't think the same, really, at all. One of my best friends from that church is a socialist communist. Now, do I disagree pretty much holistically with his political ideology? Yeah. Yeah. Do I love the way that the buzzwords that are holy words are thrown around in my church and group discussion? No, not really. I feel like they're shortchanging what's actually trying to be talked about, for one. That's kind of why I hate them. Um, Not because I think they're bad words or that we should not use them, but I just think that they're The connotations from them don't mean what people actually think they mean, for one. But that we're not talking about that right now. But anyway, I say all that to say, I, I'm it, it, not even politically. I go to I go to church with some Calvinists, who I firmly disagree with. I. I go to church with people that are very different from me in many ways, more, more than one way in a myriad of ways yet we stand together every Sunday and we quote Philippians 2 we say it as liturgy
4: have the same mind as Christ Jesus That at the name of him, every
2: knee should bow. And we take communion together at the end of every service. And it is a great reminder to me that no matter some of the differences we might hold on how we operate ourselves now, taking this bread and taking this cup. We agree in the power of Jesus. And then doing that action, we confess
4: him as Lord. And now there's worthwhile debates to have about all of those things. but
2: just because they're not convinced of my particular view on every subject. Doesn't mean I don't love them. And it doesn't mean they're not Christians. And if we're really, really going to have the same mind as Jesus and have unity in the body, And I find it humbling that I sit in church with people every week that I disagree with, make me angry, that boil my blood sometimes, some people that I just wish would shut up and not talk. And again, I've and I've mentioned this too, maybe not everyone in the building, in the coffee shop on Sunday morning who attends center confesses what I confess, but I know a lot of people that do. And they're very different from me. And I'm not talking about forced diversity here. All I'm saying is even if everyone that you commune with and people and everyone that you know who confesses Jesus as Lord and that's key but thinks differently than you do about certain things
4: there's something humbling about taking communion with them
2: saying liturgy, singing worship with them. Because I feel how how I feel about that and what I remember for me is in doing so, I'm submitting myself to something that's greater. Greater than any political ideology, greater than any church trauma, which we deal with a lot at our church. greater than any past sin that they've committed against me or I've committed against them or someone else has committed against them. Greater than any cultural difference, any racial difference, any prejudice of any kind, stands Jesus. And when I take the bread and the cup with people who are far different from me, I remind myself And we do as a body that we submit to something greater.
4: Again, these things are very
2: complicated. So let's not act, let's A, let's not act like they're not, and B, Let's remember that the body of Christ is made up more than more people than just think like you do. Who also love
4: Jesus. Who also eat his flesh and drink his blood. And at
2: the end of the day, in doing that action, whether we admit it or not, we're saying that it's not permission
4: It's on the throne. It's Jesus.
2: And I guess that's my heart. I want a church, and this is what Jeremy says all the time. When we talk about submission, at my church? Do you really want to submit all that to the monarchy of Jesus? And that's going to do certain things to you. It might make you a little more conservative in some areas. It might make you a little more liberal in some other areas. And that's okay.
4: It might. Might.
2: Might is the operative word there. Might. But I'm just going to keep spinning my wheels with parentheticals because, like I say, this, this shit is complicated. So.
4: <laughs> yeah. Trying to figure it out. We all are.
2: Well, that's where i'm gonna end it <laughs> i don't know if you have yeah, anything else um, to say i think that was a good look uh, out tell them look out for my worldview.
1: cloudy when you sink got you thinking it's a whirlpool caesar in your pockets you can't see who's in your pockets but stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move wifey bob her head and make her curls move crown jewelers character and this ain't immortality with fairy dust never land never say i would never give you hands if i can't give them back then you look